Well, I get set up. Uh, please turn to Luke 13 and verse 10. Everyone's found uh, Luke 13, verse 10, okay? Okay, as our custom, why don't we stand and read together? And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from the bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Please be seated. I want to begin this morning by showing you a couple of pictures. I want you to look at them, and I want you to take them in. And I want you to imagine yourself in that situation, and even record in your mind the first emotions that come to you. Okay, Genesis House, what are you thinking? Yell it out. Painful? Perseverance? Survival. Survival, yeah. Yeah. Emotionally, what are you feeling? If you're her. Or I guess if you were in her place, what would you be feeling? Mm -hmm. Heartbroken. Heartbroken. Discouraged. Alone. Some of the pictures I found of the people in the, around the world in the situation had cups. They were beggars on the street. You can imagine why. You can't work. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, you can't lift your head to see, yeah. Okay. Today's story is a story on one side of conflict. On the other side, one of compassion and praise. But really, what really sets the tone for the conflict and the compassion and the praise has everything to do with the location and the timing of the event. This is of great importance in this setting up the scene for this story, and we pick it up in verse 10. 
It says there that, and he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Notice the location in which this healing takes place is a synagogue. A synagogue uh, in the Greek language is really a collecting or a gathering. It's really the place where the Jews came to sort of gather and to collect together to be taught and hear the word of God. You would consider it today the equivalent of a modern day church. Now, I had the privilege in Israel of going there a few years ago and seeing the best preserved and excavated uh, synagogue of the first century. And this was in Magdala. And here's a picture of like the, the foundational stones and whatnot. But as you can see, it's not really a massive building. We uh, in, went to Nazareth, and Nazareth actually had reconstructed a synagogue as if the, basic, basing it off of the sizes of the excavations they found around the area. And so this is a typical synagogue in terms of what it would look like on the exterior. And uh, obviously made out of brick in, in the Jerusalem and Israel area. And inside, pretty small. Um, just like uh, the, the, the pastor, the rabbi, I guess you'd say, the rabbi was standing sort of in the middle and everyone would gather around him on these, uh, on these sort of stone pews. Now, interesting enough, you can't tell who's in the background there, but if I come up closer, that's uh, Laurel Jensen on the right from our church on the top right-hand corner, Jody, Dan's wife, and D Dan in the middle, obviously holding a scroll, and you've met him a few times, and uh, another friend of ours, Dan Green, who many of you know on the other side. So these are all the Calgary Okotoks people that went, but this is a typical synagogue of what it would look like. Now, although they were prevalent in Jesus' day, that was not always the case in Israel. Synagogues didn't really come into existence until after the second temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The Jews, remember, were taken into captivity, and up to that point, the temple was the central location of worship. That's where they always met. There was, um, all the life was really centered completely around the temple. But after it got wiped out, the Jews felt displaced in terms of their worship. And so they started to gather in small groups, which planted seeds for these buildings to be created, which are called synagogues today. Now here's what's important about synagogues. First of all, they were the heart of religious and social life, if you were a Jew. You were the heart of the heartbeat of your social life and the religious life if you were a Jew. And so uh, everything was sort of centered around that within your community. Now, to be excommunicated from that was a major tragedy if you were a Jew. To be excommunicated from your, from your synagogue was, was, was just a social disaster. And the reason was is because, again, it's the heartbeat of the life that you had. And we see an example of this in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, remember, a blind man is healed from birth. And so they want to know who healed you, and they call the parents in. They call the parents in, and it says that the parents actually told the, the leaders of the synagogues and the religious leaders, we actually don't know who healed them. But listen to the reason why in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, the parents said, he is of age, ask him who healed them. So you can tell the importance of the synagogue life in, Luke, in John 9, that the parents are so afraid to be thrown out of that community that they won't even, that they won't even like really stand up for their son. But really important, 
in the context, especially here, is this is the place where you would gather to hear the word of God. Not only gather, this is where you would learn the application of how God's word was to be lived out. <laughs> okay, so really important things. And so early on in Jesus' ministry, we see that the synagogue is a place to hear and be taught the word of God. After Christ is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, he comes out of his ministry. So he comes out of the temptation and enters right into ministry and listen to the first words spoken in Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. We see immediately then in verse 16, he's come to Nazareth to teach in the synagogue. And then we see in verse 31, he comes to Capernaum to teach in the synagogue. And we see him here in verse 10 in our text, teaching in the synagogue. So really, this is important because although the, there's a healing that occurs there, ultimately what's going on is a battle between Jesus and the religious leaders as to who has the word of God right. Who has spiritual authority? Who had the truth? And how was it applied? And so the synagogue sets up the scene for the source of conflict. And also the compassion and the praise. Now the timing is important because it says that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, was a day that the Lord had set aside for the Jews to completely rest from their work. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 13 says this, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. So in Israel's day, in the time of Moses and whatnot, um, the Sabbath was designed to be a benefit to the people of Israel. It was designed to be a blessing. And this is why Jesus himself in Mark chapter 2, in verse 27, said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath because the Sabbath was for man to give him rest and be a blessing to him from his work. The problem was, while the religious leadership agreed that no work should be done on it, they had, they were, the question was, what constituted work? Okay, so no work, so what counts as work? Well, the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders of those days came up with extra laws above and beyond God's law as to what constituted work, but they made that the source by which you lived your life. So if you were taught in the synagogues about obeying the Sabbath, you would also hear their man-made laws surrounding the Sabbath. So you couldn't walk more than this many steps, you couldn't do this kind of activity, you couldn't carry something beyond a certain height of your body, and so on and so forth. But here's the point, and the key point I should say, within God's law, Acts of mercy and compassion were always allowed. Within the law of God, you were always allowed to do acts of mercy. Where do we get this from? From Jesus' own words. Look at Mark chapter 2 with me in verse 23. Turn to Mark chapter 2 and verse 23. 
And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along with picking up the, the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why, why are they doing this or doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests? And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See what's going on here? Within the law of God, only the priests were allowed to eat that particular bread. Only the priests. You would break the law if anyone else ate it. David and his men show up, and they're in need, the text says, and they're hungry. And so there was provision to eat of that bread because of the need of a person. It was an act of mercy and compassion, and God was like, that is good. That's good. That is acts of mercy and acts of compassion are allowed within my regulations. The religious leaders then had taken the blessing that the Sabbath was made for man and made man for the Sabbath. They reversed it. They had made man fit for the Sabbath, whereas Jesus had made the Sabbath fit for man. And they weighed people down with all their regulations. So I know it took a little bit of a time to explain all this, but it's absolutely critical to notice the location and the timing of this uh, event because it's significant on what happens throughout the whole story. So let's look at the condition of the woman. The condition of the woman. It says in verse 11, and there was a woman for 18 years who had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. This woman clearly would have been uh, bent double, means that she would have been half her height. Half her height, those of you who are six foot would be about three foot tall. Those of you who are about five foot would be two and a half feet tall. But you get the point, you'd be half the height. And you would be at a probably a 90 degree angle or close to it. And we have this phrase in our culture, you wouldn't want to walk a mile in their shoes, or you would want to walk a mile in their shoes. Imagine what it'd be like to walk a mile in hers. She wouldn't have seen the sunset the way you and I had for years, for 18 years. She'd never get to look at the stars in the heavens. She wouldn't get to see the soaring of an eagle that you and I would take for granted. All she would see would be the dust of the ground and the shuffling of her sandals. Her physical presence would be not noticed by anybody with the exception of probably being made fun of or thanking God that you were not like her. If you were a Jew, you might even have said, what has she done that God has punished her in this way? What sin has she done? What sin has she done against the Lord? While it's not mentioned about her emotional state, I'm sure there were days when it took a huge toll on her. Any of you who have known personal illness for a long time, you know how that's affected you and how you have to wrestle emotionally through those health issues. The second thing you want to point out in here is that twice in this chapter, we're told how long the disease was for. In verse 11, it says for 18 years. 
for 18 years. And then in verse 16, when, when Jesus is speaking, he says, this woman has been bound by Satan for 18 long years. So 18 is mentioned twice in the text. The people here, or sorry, the, Luke wants you to know this was chronic. This disease was chronic and had been set in and confirmed. This was her accepted reality. Nothing was going to change. But fascinating, most fascinating to me anyway, was the fact that it was caused by a spirit. You see that in verse 11. There was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. We see later on in verse 16, Jesus says, this was a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound for 18 long years. So you'll notice here that um, this, the Satan or this demon, this, this demon, demonic spirit has been the cause of her disease. Now, whether she invited this spirit into her life 18 years prior, or she was merely a victim, we don't know, because Luke doesn't tell us. But clearly, the devil was attributed to the cause of her sickness, which makes me believe that her deformity was not congenital, meaning it wasn't something she was born with. It probably came on later in life, which perhaps could make the pain even more real, because you actually had a time in your life when you knew what normal felt like. But this got me thinking about disease and sickness and illness. How much disease out there is a result of the devil's direct involvement and the rest of it is just because we live in a fallen, broken world. I'm not saying that every illness is caused by the devil, like there's a demon behind every rock, but clearly he can be involved in some. And we have scriptural evidence of this, don't we? Job. Job. How about Paul in Corinthians? This thorn in the flesh was sent to me by Satan. Now, there's debate in the Christian community as whether he was possessed, she was possessed by the devil or just oppressed by the devil. You will hear other pastors stand up and say that this was a, a, a possession. I'm going to suggest to you it was not a possession. It was just a, like a cruel strike of the devil upon her. But I'm going to give you some suggestions as to why. I went through the scriptures in which Jesus encountered demoniacs and tried to look at the distinguishing features between those encounters and what happens here. First of all, there's no erratic behavior, no shouting out, no violence from her, no antagonism towards him. In other encounters that I could read in the scriptures, there was always some kind of confrontation or manifestation of violence. This woman seems to be in a calm, uh, sane mindset. Number two, in all of the casting outs of demons that I saw in the scriptures, they initiate with Jesus. So when they come, when Jesus enters their presence, they begin shouting at him. They come after him. I couldn't find this. And I, again, I might, if, you, if you think of one in dialogue, let me know. Because I had to go through it quickly. But I can't think of anywhere where Jesus confronts a demon without them confronting him first. And what happens in this story, he initiates with her, not the other way around. And finally, I can't find any record of ever Jesus touching anyone possessed by a demon. I can't think of one scripture where he touches someone who's demonically possessed. He commands them out and then might engage them in contact. Here, he touches her. He touches her. 
So again, my suggestion to the text is that she was oppressed, but not possessed. But regardless of whether I'm right or wrong, let's be honest, this situation was dire, this situation was hopeless, and this would have been a very a situation of much despair until the day she met Jesus Christ. Let's look at Jesus at his words. In verse 12, in verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus saw her. He saw her. No doubt this woman was used to being noticed before, but this time the look was different. Jesus looked at her and saw a deep need. This was not someone to make fun of, thank God you weren't like her, to wonder what she did to sin against God, to be in this condition. He looked at her with different eyes. Second thing he did is he called her to himself. And this is important because from what we can tell from the text, she wasn't calling out to him like we see in other miracles and people are going after him. She, he actually called after her. Which, which suggests to me then that she actually wasn't going there to actually try to find Jesus for a healing. She was picked out of a crowd, so to speak, and this was probably unexpected to her as to what was going to happen that day. In other words, it was his initiation towards her and not her initiating with him. And he invited her into his presence, an invitation into the presence of the Lord. Third, when she came, Jesus spoke to her. But I love the words. He didn't interrogate her. What did you do to be like this? Or why are you like this? He didn't require any explanations. He simply took her at face value and pronounced healing over her sickness. He extended words of mercy over her life. And the fourth thing he did was he laid hands on her. He was willing to touch her. And when he touched her, that's when the healing was made complete. But I left my favorite observation to the end. Remember, location and timing is everything in this passage. What was Jesus willing to do to bring about the time to make for this healing? Interrupt his own teaching. Interrupt his own teaching. The synagogue is a place we've learned where he, you teach the word of God. He's already teaching in the synagogue. He's full stride in the middle of his uh, sermon. He's on page four out of six. He sees the deep need of a woman. And he says, the word of God right now can wait just a few minutes so I can deal with the deep need of this woman. Wow, that struck me. The heart of Christ, the compassion of Christ. He was sent to teach the word of God, and he's willing to take the time because he sees a woman in deep need.
as I began thinking about this, the fact that he did all these things, I started to think about actually the prayer ministry that we're involved in right now and why John's coming here. It was kind of cool that virtually everything we see Jesus do, we're trying to emulate him and duplicate him in. We see people in need. We call people over to us. We speak to them. We lay hands on them and ask by the, by the Lord's authority that they be healed. And we're willing to interrupt our schedules to do so. We did a sermon at the beginning of the year and being a light along, around those who are within us within our midst. I encourage you to take Jesus' model here, to see, to call, to speak, to touch, and to interrupt, to bring the gospel, the good news, and healing to people's lives. So why did he do this? Well, why did he do this? What was the reason? Well, the answer is found in verse 15 and 16. But the Lord answered him and said, this is after he spoke to the synagogue official who was indignant against him. In 15, Jesus says this, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? What was the reason he did this? Compassion. He saw a deep need. It was out of empathy. He says to them, listen, if you have an ox, an animal, like a donkey, whatever, that you value, that you value because it, you, know, you work with it, it makes a living with you. If you value this animal and you see that animal lowing in the heat because it's thirsty, or you can tell that it's faint or hasn't been hasn't drunk for a long time, would you not just simply towards an animal extend some kind of grace, untie it, and walk it over to like a well or whatever to get a little bit of water? Or a trough, I should say? Would you not take your, your lowly animal who's in need and just give him a little drink? And yet this woman who's been bound as well, she's tied up to a post, if you will. She's tied up as well. This daughter of Abraham, am I not right to extend grace and mercy and compassion to her and release her from her post on the Sabbath day? Jesus was saying, if you do that for an animal, why wouldn't you do it for a fellow Jew? So Jesus really heals here because of a compassionate heart. He sees those in deep need. So, what were the responses? We get three different responses in the text. The first one is from the, from the healed woman. We pick this up in verse 13. After she was made erect, she began glorifying God. <laughs> glorifying God. She began praising. She began giving thanks. She was grateful that God had acted through Jesus Christ. We're going to learn next week when John preaches here, that one of the desired outcomes of healing is that people give glory to God. That's one of the reasons why he heals. 
And I mean, it's important she directed her praise this way because we see in other parts of the text or other, sorry, other parts of scripture where that doesn't always take place. In Luke chapter 17, four chapters later, we're going to see the healing of the 10 lepers and only one returns to give glory to God and the other nine don't. So for this woman to, to glorify God is, is substantial within the gospel of Luke because she recognizes that God has provided Christ as the source of her healing. And what an incredible miracle beyond, beyond comprehension. You think about what it takes to make that, that body straight. Every bone would have been bent and cemented in a particular way. Every tendon was shortened in a particular way. Every muscle was, the, was changed in its function and form. Every neural pathway had been set in differently. And yet Jesus restores all of those aspects with the word of his authority. No extra physiotherapy required. Fully functioning, no partial healing. It's an absolute miracle. And she knows to direct the praise towards the Lord. I think that was important for me to see that because sometimes I've, I've met people who, in which healing occurs, and they kind of don't want to praise the Lord in, in a way because they're, they're afraid that others around them who haven't been healed are going to feel bad. But if we learn anything from this text, we don't worry about ourselves and what others might think of us. We just be grateful to God for what he's did and that for what he has done, and he will extend an arm of compassion towards us. And again, the praise here is not directed to the one who prayed. It's directed to the one who had the power to make it happen. Let's look at the response of the synagogue official in verse 14. In verse 14, um, he became indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he began to say to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. The word indignant simply means to be angered. It's an intense displeasure towards Christ. Now, what's important about this is he could not deny the miracle took place. He actually says, there are six days in which this can be done. Come back on those days and get healed. So he doesn't deny the supernatural happened in his midst. He saw the unbelievable display of power like everyone else. The issue was that Jesus challenged the core of their authority. That's the true issue going on here. They're the synagogue officials. They're the leaders. They're the, they're the ones that tell you the, teach you the word of God and tell you how it's to be applied. Jesus doing that is undermining all of their man-made laws and their traditions. It's an issue of spiritual authority, and Jesus has cut them right to the heart, right in front of the entire crowd who are witnessing this. Again, the Old Testament law never spoke against acts of mercy. But what Jesus did only spoke against their interpretation of the law, not God's intent. And so the leader of the synagogue attempts to teach the crowds in a battle for authority, right? He turns, and he turns to the crowds and says, what Jesus did is not right, people. And that's why the analogy of the ox is so powerful. 
Because by that time, when he gives that, no one can say anything against what Jesus has just said. So Jesus upset the apple cart. He broke the system. He was blatantly telling them, really, by his actions, that they were wrong. You can see why the tension now was there high in the synagogue and why they're indignant towards him. They were humiliated because he had just undone their understanding of the word of God and undermined their spiritual authority. So she may have been crippled physically, but these leaders were crippled spiritually. And this is important for us because I speak as one who leads this church and shares some leadership, but it's, we have to be careful not to fall into this trap ourselves. We often have traditions of men that we set up of what it is to be a Christian in our head that God never intended to be part of it. We can have traditions in our own lives that we think are really important for holiness, but God actually doesn't really care if we follow them or not. And so we have to be very careful that our denominations um, don't become the, the standard by which we live out our lives, or our church leaders necessarily if they've got it wrong, or any traditions within our family. We have to make sure we know the word of God and how it applies, and that becomes our trump card. I was thinking of as an example of this. I was thinking of an example of this, and I think this is, this is what, how it applied. So remember, the law was you could not eat showbread. But, um, days, um, but that food was available in times of need for David and his men. When I grew up, um, uh, especially in, the, like in Scotland and whatnot, it was really important uh, that you didn't buy anything in the store on a Sunday. You didn't buy any food or, or anything like that on a Sunday. And let's, let's just say that the Sabbath, like this is another argument, but are we to obey the Sabbath today or not? Let's just say we are, okay? Let's just say there's a law that all Christians are to obey the Sabbath and we, and we agree to that. I grew up under that mandate, and so therefore you are not allowed to have um, food on a Sunday from a store. And just to clarify, it wasn't my parents, it was my grandparents who were in ministry. So as a grandchild visiting them, Sunday was often like burdensome for many reasons. Couldn't do this, couldn't do that. But here's the point. If, I, if they were to invite another family over for dinner and they didn't have enough food, they wouldn't go to the store to buy food because they didn't want to break the law. It's a man-made tradition. After watching what God did, what would he do? If I said, Lord, you know it's my tradition that I never, I never um, you know, buy food on Sundays, but I have a family in need and I'm inviting them over, I'm gonna go buy food this time because I need to provide to them. Do you think the Lord would have disdain for us in that day? I don't think so. It's man-made tradition. And they weighed us down with that. To the point that as a grandchild, it was no fun to be in grandma and grandpa's house because it was just, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that. Now, I will say this, I did love my grandparents and they were godly people. I know they're in glory and they did much good for the kingdom of God, but they had a tradition that they weren't willing to break. And so we all have them probably, we just have to search our hearts. And they come out in our conversations and whatnot, so be sensitive to not make man-made traditions the means by which we determine how we live out our holiness.
Let's look at the crowd, the final response in verse 17. And he said this, and all his opponents were humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. The synagogue erupted into a place of praise after watching what Jesus did. If the people were sitting quiet, they weren't sitting quiet anymore. They were rejoicing after watching that incredible miracle take place right in their midst. Clearly, God was at work, and they were rejoicing over it. We are going to be having, uh, for the first time in our 10 years, an actual healing service at Genesis House. Next week, on Sunday, when John comes, we're going to be having a sermon, but we're going to be having a time where people can come up for healing. Because we're not cessationists at Genesis House. We believe that the gifts still operate today, and miracles occur today. And I actually know of two or three that have actually happened in this church already. And so we're going to come forward and ask people to come forward and pray for one another. Now, some of us may be bent over in physical ways, but some of us might be bent over in other ways. or bent over emotionally. You know, wounds from childhood, wounds in marriage, things like that. We're going to be praying for one another and having a church where the Lord can do his work. We're going to give him the opportunity to do his work. So I invite you to next week's service. So what are we to learn today? Number one, there are times when Satan can be attributed to the source of one's sickness. I'm not saying every sickness is, is Satan um, initiated, but clearly he can be the source. We have three examples in the scriptures where Paul had a thorn sent from Satan. We have Job. We have this woman. So there, he can be attributed to it. Number two, when Jesus chooses to heal, it is often out of his compassion for others. Again, there's more than one reason why Jesus heals, but one of the reasons is compassion. And this is substantiated by verse 15. He says, you hypocrites, would you not untie an ox? In other words, that, that, that ox is in deep need. Everything about this text shows you that the woman wasn't even pursuing Jesus. But he looked at her, he saw her, and he saw a deep need in her. And he said, you know what? She needs my loving hand at this moment. Other scriptures um, in the New Testament also support this. You will see that it'll say often, out of compassion, Jesus did this. Out of compassion, Jesus did that. And again, we'll see this next week. Number three, as believers, we have to be careful that man-made traditions and beliefs do not supersede the truth of how we understand and live out God's word. Again, um, they creep into our lives because we do like structure, we do like rules a lot of times, but sometimes we make them beyond what God intended. And so that's the purpose of our dialogues after church, that's the purpose of our Bible studies, our fellowship times, we, we always challenge each other with what we believe to be true that the Lord may or may not even care about, but we care about them and then we make those precedent over others. And so we weigh them down, we burden them 
of things he doesn't care about. Again, not saying we're not Christians because of this, but we just have to be taught in particular areas of our walk. And finally, as you know my heart since September about missions, <laughs> this is uh, one I love. I call this a pattern for setting the table for healing. It's not that this is the only way Christ healed, right? He spit, he put fingers in mud and made mud and like, you know, he spit on people and all sorts of things. I didn't preach on that one for the model. I don't encourage you to spit in mud and wave it in people's eyes. But this is a cool one, a pattern for setting the table for healing. We see, we invite, we proclaim, we lay hands, and we allow for schedule interruptions. See people for the deep needs they have. Invite them that you'll pray for them. Proclaim healing over their life in whatever area they, they say they're hurting in. Ask if you can lay hands and touch them as you pray over them. And allow your schedule to be interrupted to take care of the needs of others. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. Um, not, because it's, uh, not because it's just written on the page, but because we know it transforms our lives in the way we think and we live. Lord, uh, help us to be sensitive to see people who are in need. Sometimes we get so busy, we just walk on, right, walk on right by people and we don't hear the cries of their heart. Help us to have your heart of compassion and give us uh, discernment in how to engage with people. Uh, we do believe you're a God who heals, and so we pray, Lord, that um, you give us those opportunities as often as you can. We also thank you, Lord, that uh, we don't have to live by the, the man-made traditions of the Pharisees and people like that and other religions, that we can come to you because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Help us to live under grace, Lord, and to embrace that every day. In Jesus' name, amen.